0: We are back. As we promised in the top of the program, we're going to return to the subject of Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit, of course, has hit theaters last week. We had jockey Frank Sorcy, a man who uh, raced for 12 years and rode the immortal Sea Biscuit. Talk a bit about uh, his experiences on the horse last week. He'll be back in this segment to continue that discussion, having now seen the movie. But first, I want to talk about what started this sort of Seabiscuit mania. And that is Laura Hillenbrand's book, Seabiscuit, An American Legend. Uh, It inspired a uh, a PBS special on the subject of Seabiscuit. This book uh, got awards just everywhere you turn. Barnes & Noble Discover Award finalist, New York Times Notable Books of 2001, Washington Post Best Books of 2001, Time Magazine Best Books of 2001, The Economist Best Books of 2001. I uh, was skeptical that this uh, story about a horse could be that good, and uh, we actually wanted to have uh, our own resident English professor here at KDVS, uh, Dr. Andy Jones of Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. But he admitted that he was skeptical that uh, the book could, could keep his interest, and so he didn't read it. So unfortunately, he couldn't help us on this one. But he's, he is going to read it now, I'm pretty sure. I want to just quote from Laura Hillebrand's remarkable book because it has really started the ball rolling into what is... You know, a a, a tremendous resurgence of interest in this remarkable animal and the remarkable story of the people that were around this most famous of American racehorses. A thoroughbred racehorse is one of God's most impressive engines. Tipping the scales at up to 1,450 pounds, he can sustain speeds of 40 miles an hour. To pilot a racehorse is to ride a half-ton catapult It is, without question, one of the most formidable feats in sports. The extraordinary athleticism of the jockey is unparalleled. A study of the elements of athleticism conducted by Los Angeles exercise physiologists and physicians found that of all major sports competitors, jockeys may be, pound for pound, the best overall athletes. They have to be. There are demands on balance, coordination and reflex. A horse's body is a constantly shifting topography with a bobbing head and neck and roiling muscles over the shoulders, back, and rump. On a running horse, a jockey does not sit in the saddle. He crouches over it, leaning all of his weight on his toes, which rest on the thin metal bases of stirrups dangling about a foot from the horse's top line. When a horse is in full stride, the only parts of the jockey that are in continuous contact with the animal are the insides of the feet and ankles. Everything else is balanced in midair. A thoroughbred's neck, while broad from top to bottom, is surprisingly narrow in width, like the body of a fish. Pitching up and down as the horse runs, it offers little for the jockey to grab to avoid plunging to the ground and under the horse's hooves. A jockey is no mere passenger on the racehorse. His role in bringing home winners is critical and demanding. Jockeys must have an exquisitely fine sense of pace over each furlong or eighth of a mile. Great jockeys have a freakish talent for gauging pace to within two to three fifths of a second of the actual time. And if asked, can reliably gallop a horse over a distance at precisely the clip requested. The only thing more dangerous than being on the back of a racehorse was being thrown from one. Some jockeys took 200 or more falls in their careers. A rider who lost touch with the saddle became a projectile moving at 60 feet per second and whatever he hit became a potentially lethal instrument. Serious insults to the body, the kind of shattering or crushing injury seen in high-speed auto wrecks are an absolute certainty for every single jockey. That's the book, Seabiscuit, an American Legend by Laura Hillenbrand. I give Laura Hillenbrand all the credit in the world. I think you ought to read this one. Now let's talk about the movie. Joining us now is our special media correspondent, Mr. Gary Chu. So Gary, you, uh, you're a film man, you have a degree in film. Uh, what did you think of Seabiscuit?
1: Well, I thought it was really a, a really great uh, movie, Doug. Uh, I wouldn't say maybe great, but a, a good movie for the summer, and it's uh, good for just about people of all ages. I wouldn't take real young kids to it, but, you know, maybe... 11 12 13 14 and on up. Yeah. Uh really a great story about the that great depression uh, uh horse that we all know and love now so much, Seabiscuit. Really, Really really good film.
0: It didn't win the box office battle this weekend apparently.
1: No it didn't. I think there are too many blood and guts uh movies out which naturally pull in lots of people. Yeah. As I said in my review on a website I write for uh uh Gary Ross who is the director and writer of of the film is at least a a furlong to a light year ahead as far as quality is concerned on movies this week, because all the cineplexes are, are running over with uh, blood spatter and, spent, yeah. ammunition and stuff, spent ammunition and stuff like that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a good film, and I'm planning on taking my daughter to see it, who is about 12 years old, who has just come off two weeks of camp, learning more about horses. And I mentioned it to her on the phone yesterday, that I would be taking her to this film and, and she seemed to be quite excited about it.
0: I think it's going to be a lot, a family type picture I, my understanding is that it's finished fifth on this opening weekend but that it was in probably half the theaters of the movies finishing ahead of it and that uh, this, this next weekend it will be expanding out and have the numbers that are higher in terms of theaters so kind of like maybe Seabiscuit itself it's starting out uh, behind in the pack but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on it not finishing uh, you know in first place
1: Probably not, but uh, I think it's. I have a feeling it's going to run for a while too, yeah. and I think it's going to get some notice uh, with the Academy Award folks next year, uh, uh, next March. Uh, not. Uh, I, I would say Chris Cooper is the standout in the film uh, as the uh, the trainer of Seabiscuit, the guy who spotted the 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 real guts and courage and, and spunk that Seabiscuit had, and he had that really great uh, role that. Uh, I mentioned uh, that uh, an, uh, an actor would kill for to play. Yeah. And, and he's really good in it. Although Jeff Bridges and Toby Maguire, both two uh, super, super a- actors as well, are yeah. doing great work in it as well. I think. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I certainly enjoyed uh, the, the movie like you did, Gary, but I think that uh, the PBS special on Seabiscuit, which also aired on KVIE this week, is something that people interested in this film may want to see as sort of a companion piece. <laughs>
1: You know, I watched uh, just about all of it myself last night, uh, and I, I found it to be quite, uh, quite good and, uh, and filled in some of the blanks, you know, of the movie and probably seeing the documentary on PBS maybe first and then going to the film. Yeah. Uh, it kind of fills in some of the blanks. That the, the film is a very straightforward narrative, which really is not very layered or uh, subtle or anything like that. It's just sort of like a good old-fashioned movie that just kind of lays the story right out there in front of you.
0: The book, of course, contains much more, and so does the PBS special. I think there's a lot of detail that the, the movie the movie viewer is going to miss out on. That it's a shame.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think so. Although I didn't read the book, but uh, it certainly was a bestseller, and I think it's gonna, I'm going to put it on my list of things to read later on.
0: All right. All right. So, Gary, I guess I guess we're going to give this two thumbs up on our program, eh?
1: Hey, Yeah. Uh, really, it's it's a it's a good film for children of all ages. I think.
0: Now, uh, if people want to read your, your review, which I, which I read myself, it's on the web. Tell us where to go. You did a good job on that.
1: Okay, well, I have a nice relationship with some of my old uh, broadcast colleagues where I came from before I came out to Sacramento and Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was in radio and television there for many, many years, and they have a website there of all the you know, TV and radio people through the years and, uh, you know, and everything like that. And So I, I do movie reviews on that website, and if anyone would like to go to that website, it is... TulsaTVMemories.com. Tulsa being spelled T-U-L-S-A. TulsaTVMemories.com.
0: All right, you've got some other reviews on there as well, so let's let's have people go do that if they wanna they want to read more about it.
1: Okay, great.
0: And Gary, come again.
1: Okay, I will. Thanks so much. All righty.
0: All right. Returning to Radio Parallax, as we promised on last week's show, is Mr. Frank Sorcy, a man who rode the famous Sea Biscuit. Frank, welcome back.
2: This is Frank. Hello, everybody.
0: <laughs> now, you've had a chance to see Seabiscuit since we talked last.
2: Yes. And uh-huh. your
0: first impression is that it's, uh, it's, it's what?
2: It was fantasized.
0: A little bit exaggerated?
2: Exaggerated, yeah. Okay. Quite a bit.
0: Well, movies are famous for that
2: yeah but the story was right they got
0: most of it right
2: yes but, you know what i knew about him to me he felt like a bigger horse they say it was a small horse yeah he felt a little bigger to me like a normal sized horse and he had a long long stride and he had a lot, a lot of stamina he would the last part of it he would go
0: i guess that was what he was famous for was those those last minute charges yeah
2: because he had he could still go the other horses were tired
0: did he strike you as an unusual animal? They said he was a real smart horse. He was a real gifted horse. I mean, real...
2: No. Kind of easy. Easygoing. It was the only thing. But, you know, he didn't prance around and jump around like a lot of horses do. It was real easy. And they showed him at first how he was, you know, in the stalls, how he was rearing up and everything. Yeah. He was, I don't think he was that type of horse. Of course, I hadn't seen him when they were first broke him. Yeah. I've seen the last part of it.
0: Well, in the book, what they talk about, one thing, the point they make about Seabiscuit, and it comes out in the movie too, is that he liked to play games with other horses. He'd let them catch up, and then he'd frustrate the other horse by just running just faster than he was, which would make the horse mad.
2: I hadn't rode him in a race, so I hadn't sensed that, see? seemed like he would be that type of horse. But you had to push him, though.
0: The one fault I would have, I think, for the movie is that you don't get an idea of why it's such a remarkable animal. The author said the movie's going to not be about a horse. It's going to be about people, which I think people are glad for, because the movie talks about Red Pollard and talks about uh, uh, Tom Smith and talks about Charles Howard.
2: Most of it would seem like it was. Not too much on the horse. But yet,
0: in the bottom of all that, there's something about the horse being so remarkable is what made it all work. Now, you worked for Mr. Howard.
2: Yeah, in that 1945,
0: uh-huh.
2: I worked for him for about uh, four months. I'd I'd been riding at Phoenix. I'd been winning a lot of races at Phoenix. And and I got married, and my boss didn't appreciate it. So he wouldn't let me ride no more. So my wife and I packed everything, we went to Santa Anita that night. Okay. So then I got a job with uh, Long Champs Farms, and I worked for them for a little while. Then I worked for another outfit, and then Charlie Howard was there, and I got a job with him. Uh Uh-huh. And then I was exercising three horses a day. There was three jockeys. It was me and two others, exercise boys.
0: What does an exercise boy do with a, with a, with a racehorse?
2: They exercise him around the racetrack in the mornings. Whatever the horse needs to keep him fit. So one day you'll gallop him, one day you'll run him a two-minute lick, sometimes you'll run him for half a mile as fast as it'll go. The trainer has to say.
0: Yeah. hmm Someone explained to me that, you know, that what a jockey's doing in a horse race is not galloping. You're running. There's a big difference to horse people. A
2: lot of difference, yeah. So I was galloping them uh, three horses, and he'd put me on Seabiscuit once in a while. You know, because I was light. I only weighed 98 pounds.
0: Now, Seabiscuit had been retired by this point, so he was just basically a horse that I guess was sort of a publicity. People liked to see him.
2: No, no, no. No? He was trying to get him back up again. Oh, they were? Yeah, trying to get him back up at Santa Anita.
0: Even all those years later?
2: Yeah. And he let me ride him, and he said, go ahead and run, let him run for half a mile. And I did. And then when I pulled him up, his right ankle was hot.
0: It's, the, the movie shows kind of what a tough life you jockeys had that I think people don't realize, you know, back in the 30s and 40s, it was a, that, was a, that was a tough life, wasn't it?
2: Well, yes, it was. Because uh, you're on the road. Like, I was riding at Phoenix, and then we got to start making the Fair Circuits. Uh-huh. And then, well, I, at Portland Meadows was running in Oregon. Uh-huh. So from Phoenix, got to drive down to Oregon. It take a week or so to get down there with the horses and stuff. And I wasn't making no money. Yeah. When I'm on the road. Yeah. See, so then sometimes when I get to a place where I'm riding and doing real good, I'm making a lot of money. Yeah. Then next month I'm broke.
0: The movie shows, I guess, how Red Pollard, when he goes to work for, uh, for Charles Howard, he's, he's more or less, or whoever it was, he's saying, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll hot walk him, and I guess that means just walk him around in a circle?
2: Yeah, that's it. That's where I started at Santa Anita, when I first started. Walking hot and cleaning stalls.
0: I guess people don't realize a lot of the jockey's life at first involved, uh, I guess, until you become a, a proven winner, you're doing a lot of the cleanup jobs.
2: Until you showed that you could stay on a horse. And like me, I never had rode, ridden a horse in my life. I studied machine shop at San Jose Tech. I wanted to be a machinist. Like I said, I couldn't get a job because I was too small. But I still enjoy shop work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy with working, like building houses and stuff like that.
0: Which I guess you were able to do later after you retired.
2: I had to spill at Bay Meadows when this horse broke her leg yeah. in 1948.
0: Which you told us about on last week's show.
2: Yeah, it yeah. was a crack my head. Yeah. Then uh, t- uh, two years later, I, I started riding again. It took that long. But my like I said before, my wife didn't appreciate it at all. She didn't want me in the hospital no more. And, you know, she told me it was either the horses or her. And, of course, I chose her and forgot <laughs> the horses.
0: When they show these guys having long conversations riding down on the horse, that that's not realistic, is it?
2: No, but... Uh, you know, I'm going to do whatever I can to beat this guy. You know, alongside of me, whatever it takes. Well, what yeah. what what did it take? Hitting the horse on the on the nose, or <laughs> cutting him off, or you know, the with a saddle towel. It's a with a number is on the horse. That little towel. Yeah. You could grab a hold of that towel while you're uh, going, and if he's alongside of you, you could pull that towel back, and you could pull him back a little bit. I'm going to gain. He's going to lose. Foot or two. So I'm going to get in front of him.
0: You're actually, actually physically pulling him back. Yeah. Him, yes. him and the horse.
2: Because when they're airborne, they're real easy to, you know, to pull back.
0: It wasn't just being done to you. You, you, have, you. You're admitting to our audience. You were doing it too.
2: I'm, I'm there to win a race. <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're fighting and arguing on the racetrack. Yeah. But when you go back to the jocks room between races, we're sitting playing cards together. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're friends. But when we get on the racetrack, we're enemies. You know, and... Uh, Coming out of the gate, I noticed that one thing coming out of the gate. They were all talking together in the gate. Yeah. But we didn't talk together like that. I holler like crazy. You know, no chance, sir, no chance. And that means don't ring the bell because my horse is not ready. Right. And I would holler all the time till my horse was perfectly ready. And I got out of the gate in front quite a few times.
0: So there's a lot of psychological battle going on there in the gate.
2: You've got to be ready. or You get left in the gate and then... And then when you get back to the barn and the boss says so you got left in the gate and you lost the race and kind of that, he won't let you ride his horses no more.
0: Right. Right. So it kind of it makes you be a little aggressive.
2: Yeah. And now, uh, like I said, uh, I got a little nervous each time I rode. Not riding the horse coming out of the gate, that didn't bother me any. But when I got in the patio and then they put me up on the horse and the owner had told me what to do with the horse, how yeah. to run him. And then uh, they'd start blowing the trumpet. Uh-huh. You know, and then start walking out, it made me very nervous. Because I thought, gee, suppose I make a mistake. You know, suppose I get left in the gate. Or suppose I do something where I got, you know, I got blocked off. Somebody gets in front of me and I can't get, you know, where I wanted to. It made me very nervous.
0: So it, it preys on your mind and you kind of get butterflies in your stomach. But, uh, but you were very successful at it. You won 800 races in 12 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. They were all not all on recognized racetracks. tracks. Uh-huh. A lot of the... They call them bush tracks. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of bush tracks. And, you know, like, they were talking about the match races when they took Seabiscuit and uh, the other horse together to match them. Yeah. And there was a lot of that. And the way them match races started is uh, the, the cowboys would go around the barns and they'd be drinking. And they'd be on the horse and they'd be talking, my horse is better than yours, see? <laughs> and, you know, they say, put your money where your mouth is. In other uh-huh. words, put some money up and we'll see what, what horse is the best. Yeah. And that's where the match races started. And there was a lot of them. Especially huh. when there was a lot of drinking around the barns.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, they, they talk in the movie about these claiming races and how, I guess, Seabiscuit ran a lot of races where somebody could have just said, Hey, I like that horse, I'll buy him, but, but nobody would.
2: I guess nobody did because he didn't look very good. He didn't run so good at first. But then later on, he wasn't on claiming races no more. He was on the, the big races.
0: Now, you, you knew George Wolfe.
2: Oh, so I, I, I know him, yeah. I've met him, oh, yeah. And Longdon and Adams and Zupelt and uh, Mel Lewis. and I rode with all them boys.
0: What, w- what would you say was your most memorable race? Is there one that stands
2: out? Oh, <laughs> there's a story on that. <laughs> It'll take about two or three minutes.
0: Well, we got two or three minutes. Let's hear it.
2: When I first started riding at uh, San Ysidro, I rode for Charlie Brown. He was the circus clown. And... Uh, I, start, I learned there to ride horses on the river bottom. And there was sand there, see, so whenever I was breaking colts. Okay. And if they bucked me off, they bucked me off in the sand, and I didn't get hurt. Right. So I, I learned to ride there, and there was a little village called Sky Ginger. I broke to ride, and uh, he let me ride her at Tijuana. And he said, don't win on her. Just go easy with her. And, uh, and I was an apprentice boy, and you know, nobody's going to bid on this apprentice jockey. And this horse has never done nothing. Okay. So then he let this other kid, Hig, Dwight Higby, ride there. And he told him to pull her. So he did too. And then he put me, this little apprentice boy, never run a race on a recognized racetrack. And this little filly had, had shown nothing. So the price, was, it went to 16 to 1.
0: So this is, this is a way for the owner to kind of give everybody an underestimate his horse.
2: Yeah. He got her in there and he said, go and let her run. And I did. And of course I win. Mm-hmm. I had no problem. And, you know, he gave me the purse. It was $3,000. And that was my biggest race. Uh, more, the most exciting race I ever rode in my life.
0: You're, you're a young guy. You, you ride this horse down in Tijuana. $3,000 is quite a, quite a lot of money.
2: It was, yeah. Then it was a lot of money. It was a, a 36 37 like that. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, was, it was a lot of money then. I was, I was doing good. I was making good money. Uh, you know, maybe I was making $20 a day. That was good money.
0: Now, you never did meet Red Pollard, I guess. No, Okay. No. Was, was he pretty well known because of the Seabiscuit thing? Was he kind of famous for that? or
2: I didn't know him yeah. then because I was riding at the bush tracks yeah. and at Phoenix and yeah. Tucson and Bigsby and, Bixby, and, and uh, Flagstaff and up through there. Yeah, and he was at, he, he was at the bigger tracks. Seabiscuit was the only horse that Pollard rode, but uh, you got to ride more than one horse to make a living. So I don't know if he made a living off of that one horse. Unless Charlie Howard paid him a good salary to keep working for him. But Charlie paid me pretty good.
0: Sounded like he was pretty well loaded, pretty well set up.
2: He was paying me 300 a month. That was that was pretty gorgeous then.
0: But uh, when, when, when they show this stuff, uh, people beating each other, hitting each other with the whip and all that, I mean, I guess that, that didn't happen a lot, but it did happen?
2: It, it could happen, but it's exaggerated. And they had one little insert there about... Uh, a hot shot. I don't know if you heard about that.
0: What's a hot shot?
2: I don't know if I should be telling this or not. Maybe we might have to edit this. It's a little electrical prod. At about 500 volts. Uh huh. It's about as big as two little flashlight batteries, 10 light batteries, like a cattle prod.
0: You weren't using those in the race, were you?
2: I had used them. Okay. But that's uh, illegal, of course. Yeah. So, but they can't set me down now because I'm not riding anymore.
0: Well, no, you're pretty. Mu- I think you're pretty much past the statute of limitations, Frank.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> so. my father-in-law bought a horse from Honolulu called Upo. and uh, he wouldn't run too good. Uh-huh. And I tried him with a hot shot one time in the morning. <laughs> yeah. And he ran good. It made him go. <laughs> so he got him in at Portland Meadows. And it was the last race of the, of the season, uh-huh. and it was 12 o'clock midnight, and I had it on me. I used it, mm-hmm. and I win the race very easy, no problem, uh-huh. I had no problem. But then I, uh, I had a strap to my wrist, and when I slew the judge, my sleeve come down, uh-huh. and it was exposed, but he didn't see it.
0: Lucky for you.
2: Yeah, because I would have been ruled off completely, see. So that was uh, kind of an experience with a hot shot, but they, they, they used to use them quite a bit.
0: So there, there, there was really a lot of cheating going on, like, like they show in the movie. That actually did happen a lot. Yeah. All right. Well, Frank, that's about all we have time for today. But thank you for reminiscing with us about <laughs> America's most famous racehorse, Seabiscuit. Okay, thank you. That's about it for today's show. We'd like to thank once again comedian Will Durst, publisher-editor James Israel investigative journalist Christina Borgeson, our special media correspondent Gary Chu, and Seabiscuit jockey Frank Sorcy. We enjoyed having everyone on the show today, but um, I must say I've been a Will Durst fan for a couple of decades now, and I went to his website, www.willdurst.com, to find a suitable quote with which to end this program. And there's so many to choose from, but here's the one I'm going to go with. You know... There are a Wheel of Fortune people, and there are Jeopardy people. And I think the fate of the world should be decided by a Jeopardy person. All right, that's it for this show. Stay tuned for Todd Yurick to follow with Hometown Atrocities. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. This show was produced by Edward McMillan. And this is, of course, KDVS 90.3 FM. We'll see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock.